0: That was pretty fun, wasn't it? That was very good. That's why you got to come to both services. You can hear that twice. Well, this morning we come to Judas Iscariot. Uh, we were teaching our kids the apostles when they were growing up one of my children affectionately titled his name Judas the scariest. And we had to say, no, it's Iscariot. But he is the scariest. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Of course, we'll be looking at the last name in verse 16. We had the college up here, and uh, I knew they were going to be coming this morning. And I thought to myself, I'm going to do a little study. Do you know... Who started the first public schools run by American taxpayer money? It was the Puritans. The Puritans and the Bible was central to the original curriculum to make sure students were not deceived by Satan. That was in 1647. Taxpayers' money going to train people in the Bible. We've come a long way downhill since then. 88 out of the first 100 colleges founded in America were organized to promote the gospel and the claims of Jesus Christ Every college institution founded in the colonies prior to the Revolutionary War except the University of Pennsylvania was established by some branch of the Christian church to train people for the gospel ministry. But even the University of Pennsylvania, when they were first deciding to build the structures, the first structure they built there was a big meeting hall so that George Whitfield, the evangelist, could preach there on a regular basis. And Benjamin Franklin lobbied to make sure it would come to pass. And now there's a statue of George Whitfield that has been there on the campus all of these years and the students walk by it every day and don't even know who he is. Harvard started off with these rules and precepts adopted in 1646. One, everyone shall consider the main end of his life and study to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Secondly, seeing the Lord gives wisdom, everyone shall seriously by prayer and in secret seek wisdom from God. Third, everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that they be ready to give an account of their proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of languages and logic and in practical and spiritual truths. Harvard. And thus, 52% of the 17th century Harvard graduates became ministers. Yale's president, Timothy Dwight, said, quote, Christ is the only, the true, the living way of access to God. Give up yourselves, therefore, to him, and with a cordial confidence with the, to the great work of his life. End quote. Could you imagine a secular university president saying that? They'd crucify him. Columbia College was established... And this is how they advertised the school. Quote, the chief thing that is aimed at in this college is to teach and engage children to know God in Jesus Christ. End quote. John Witherspoon, first president of Princeton, said, quote, Cursed be all the learning that is contrary to the cross of Christ. Cursed be all the learning that does not coincide with the cross of Christ. And cursed be all the learning that is not subservient to the cross of Christ. End quote. William and Mary College was established to spread Christianity. Dartmouth to train missionaries to reach the Indian. And the list goes on and on. And today, every one of these schools have rejected Christianity and teach the doctrines of demons. Every single one. There is not a single instance of any of them returning to conservative Christianity. When a college goes apostate, it dies a permanent death. And the same is true with people. A permanent death. Luke discussing the night before Jesus chose the apostles says this in Luke six twelve through sixteen. It was at this time that he went off to a mountain to pray. He spent the whole night in prayer to God, and when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, who he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, the one who became a traitor. In all the lists of the apostles, Judas, the scariest, comes last. And whenever Judas is mentioned, there's always a little qualifying phrase. The one who betrayed Christ. The one who became a traitor. Every one of the gospel writers makes an effort to let us know that Judas was the bad apostolic age and his betrayal of Christ has left an eternal stench in the nostrils of God. Judas is the ultimate example of the pretender, the religious pretender, a chameleon, a spiritual Trojan horse among believers. Jesus in John 17, 12 described Judas as the son of perdition. You know what perdition means? It means waste, ruin, destruction, something worthy of being damned. Judas is the son worthy of being damned. But Judas was called by Christ just like the other apostles, if you remember. So Judas did call, or Jesus did call Judas. He was a man gifted in finances. They made him treasurer. He was trusted. That's why they gave him the money. He was sent out with the other apostles with power and authority to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, and lead other people to Christ. And he did. But what is amazing is that Jesus chose Judas knowing he would betray him. In John 6, 64, Jesus says to a group of those who are following him, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. From the beginning, Jesus knew who it was who would betray him. Later in that same chapter in verse 70, right after Peter's confession that Jesus was the Holy One of God, Jesus said, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Jesus specifically chose Judas knowing Judas would betray him. He chose him because he knew that Judas was just the right man to fit into God's plan to have Jesus crucified and die for the sins of men. In John twelve four through 6, it tells us about Jesus' character. He was a deceiver. He was a liar. When Jesus, for instance, was, going, uh, was meeting in a house and a woman poured some costly perfume, perfume on his feet, Judas said, well, you know, don't you think that perfume should be used, you know, sold and that money used for the poor? And John goes on to comment, well, we know now that he didn't want to give the money to the poor. He was just lying. He was just, just trying to deceive us. He did deceive us. He was the treasurer and he would pilfer from the treasury. That's why he wanted the money. Right before the Passover feast started, Mark, Matthew, Luke, the gospel writers tell us that the Jewish leaders were trying to seize Jesus. And Luke, in Luke 22, 3, tells us that Satan entered into Judas. Now, if you study demon possession in the New Testament, you learn that there are certain catchphrases, certain um, little phrases, Greek phrases that that describe Judas or, or um, demon possession. And Judas's phrase here entered into is one of them. When Satan entered into Judas, he possessed Judas. Demon possession is not to be confused with temptation or oppression. Demon possession is when a demon takes total control, one or more demons, takes total control of a person from within. Up to this point, Satan was tempting Judas, but in Luke 22, 3, Satan entered into him and marched Judas over to the high priest and made plans with the high priest to betray Christ. Christ. Shortly after that was the Last Supper. All the apostles were gathered together in the upper room. Jesus washed their feet, even Judas's feet. Jesus then informed the disciples that one of you, one of you here, my apostles, is going to betray me. This, of course, caused Christ caused to stir, and they began to say things like, Lord, is it me? And it, and it says, and they were all saying this. Mark adds in Mark 14 20 that Jesus said this while Judas was there listening, I think it was uh, Jesus' attempt to get Judas to repent, he gave this warning, for the Son of Man is going, just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's a scary warning, and Judas heard it. Then Peter, according to John thirteen, twenty-six, asked if it was him and if not, who was going to betray Christ, and Jesus said, Well, I'm gonna dip my morsel and give it to somebody, and then you'll know. Dipped and he handed it to Judas, so Peter knew. And then Judas leaned forward and in hypocrisy, in feigning ignorance, said, Lord, is it me? Matthew twenty six, twenty five. Jesus replied, you have said it yourself. Then John tells us in John thirteen twenty seven that Satan entered into Judas a second time. And Judas left. The other guys thought, oh, he's going to get some supplies. He marched right over to the Jewish leaders, said, you know, after the supper, he usually goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be there. Later on, they came with the mob. Jesus was arrested. After Satan left Judas, Judas felt remorse. He felt repentant. He tried to give the money back to the Jewish leaders. They wouldn't receive it. He was so grieved. Matthew twenty-seven, three through ten, tells us that he went out and hung himself, and he must have hung himself off a pretty high precipice or cliff, because Acts one twenty-eight says that the rope broke and he fell headlong, and when he hit, his guts burst out, and this was the end of Judas's life here on earth. But he's still living. In hell. And at this very moment, he suffers for his betrayal of Christ. This very moment, he is in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this is the summary of the tragic life and death of Judas Iscariot. And this morning, as we wrap up our series for the apostles, we're going to look at some lessons we can learn from Judas. And they're scary because he is the scariest. The first lesson is important. They're all important. They all relate to the same thing. False assurances of salvation. And it is this, you can be called to follow Christ and not be saved. Judas, like all the other apostles, was called to follow Christ. He followed Christ for three years, but he wasn't saved. The apostles sent were sent out, remember, to preach repentance to everybody. Paul, speaking to the Greeks in Athens in Acts 17.30, said, God commands all men everywhere to repent. The call of salvation is universal. But just because you respond to the call, just because you show up to church, just because you start calling yourself a Christian, that doesn't mean you're saved. Do you remember the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22? Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast. He says there was a guy, he's having a wedding feast, and he sends out to... Invite all the people who should have come all the relatives and friends of the bride and bridegroom but they didn't want to come so then he sent his servants out and they just fill up the place go out to the highways and byways find anybody call them and you know what a whole bunch of them came and you know what they filled the place and you know what one man came but he wasn't dressed appropriately he was called yep he responded. Yep. He showed up. Yep. And then the master says, Friend, how is it Have you that you've come here without your wedding dress on? He wasn't clothed in the right thing. And he was speechless. And the master said, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He heard the call. He responded to the call. He showed up to the feast and... It just took him to hell. Some of you may be trusting that you are saved because you heard the gospel, decided to go forward, raise your hand, go to the altar, um, you know, get baptized, go to confirmation, learn the creeds, learn the hymns, whatever. But that's no assurance that you're saved. That is no assurance that you're saved. Judas did all of that and he is now this very moment in hell. Secondly, we can learn from Judas that you can be trained to do ministry and gifted to do ministry and not be saved. I mean, was Judas trained? (laughs) You bet. Jesus, the greatest teacher and preacher who ever lived, trained Judas. Jesus personally discipled Judas Iscariot for three years. Judas was there as he taught to the multitudes, and he was there when he talked to the disciples in private, and he was there in all those households, in all those situations when Jesus talked to him directly, or other apostles directly, he was able to overhear. He got expert training from Jesus. I mean, he had it all. Judas has had lots of training, but he wasn't saved. He had knowledge, but he wasn't saved. Jesus even sent Judas out to preach, and he did. And Jesus even gave him miraculous powers to heal the sick and cast out demons, and he did. And who knows, he might have even led people to Christ, but he wasn't saved. Billy Bray lived the life of a wretched sinner before 1832 and was converted and became an evangelist in a small town called Cornwall, England. He went door to door sharing the gospel and soon every inhabitant in that area was conser- converted. Every one of them. All these new believers then decided they needed to have a church. And so they all pitched in, they all gave hard and they built their own church building and then they called the Church of England and said we need a preacher. So they sent the Reverend W. Haslam to preach and shepherd those Bray led to the Lord. But Bray was disturbed because it was obvious to him after hearing Haslam preach a while that Haslam had no idea what the gospel was. So one day Bray came up to him after a service and expressed his opinion that he didn't think a Reverend Haslam was a Christian. Haslam was shaken, was upset, and angry. The next Sunday, he showed up, however, and decided to preach on Matthew twenty-two forty-two. What think ye of Christ? And as he started to preach and deliver his message, he felt his heart begin to break, and he came to repentance while preaching his own sermon. The well-educated, seminary-trained, Reverend Haslam. Some of you have quite a bit of Bible knowledge. Maybe you have grown up in the church. Maybe you have gone to Bible school and Bible college and maybe even seminary. That is no assurance that you are saved. Judas had expert training. Expert training. But he wasn't saved. You see, knowledge, understanding of the scriptures doesn't make you saved. It just increases your accountability to God. Sure, it's the means by which God can save you. But just the knowledge itself is no guarantee you are. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The, the text literally, literally reads, their hair stands on end. Any demon could be a seminary professor They know the Bible. They're experts in the scriptures and in religion. But that doesn't make them holy angels. I would imagine that some of you here this morning know quite a bit about the Bible, about Christ, about the gospel, about heaven, about hell. Maybe you've even shared with people. Maybe you've even led people to the Lord. Maybe you've memorized verses in Awana. But you aren't saved. Judas... Had knowledge. He was trained by Christ personally for three years. And right now, this very moment, Judas is in hell. Third, you can devote yourself to the ministry but not be saved. Think about the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time. Were they religious? Oh, man. Were they devoted to ministry? Big time. But Jesus called them sons of the devil who produced disciples which were 10 times more the children of hell than themselves they weren't saved religious yes active in their religion oh big time saved no jesus speaking to the multitude in the sermon on the mount warned those who were religiously active but not saved matthew 7:21 through 23 listen carefully Was. In your name. In your name. In your name. They knew who he was. Secondly, they knew that Jesus was Lord. Lord, Lord. Thirdly, they are in church and they're actively involved. Have we not? Fourthly, they claim to do miraculous deeds by God. Prophesy. Cast out demons and perform many miracles in God's name. But Jesus says, but I don't know you, so into hell you go. And what's scary about this is Jesus is describing the church in our day, in the last times. And he describes those who fit into this category as the many, the many of the church goers. Judas had gifts. Judas was sent out to minister. Christ sent him out to teach and preach and cast out demons and perform many miracles in his name, but he wasn't saved. That was no assurance he was saved. He didn't go to heaven, he didn't know Christ as his Savior. Right now, as I speak, Judas is in hell. Fourth, you can profess to be a follower of Christ but not be saved. Did Judas profess to be a follower of Christ? Of course he did. He went around telling everybody he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Representing Jesus. Just like the people in Matthew 7 profess to know Christ. There are people in every church, in this church, who profess to know Christ, but who aren't saved. Religious pretenders who are among the sheep. Going through the religious motions along with the sheep. But they aren't saved. As had, Isaiah describes them in Isaiah 29:13, he explains why God was going to judge his people and he says this is the reason why This people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Were they showing up? Yeah. Were they doing the sacrifice thing? Yeah. Were they hearing hearing the teachers? Yeah. But their heart was far from God, which means it was close to Satan. And while in Babylon, sure, they were judged, just like Isaiah said, Because their hearts were far from God. They were judged. They were taken captive to Babylon. So God raised up another prophet. Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied to them. While they were in Babylon. And Ezekiel must have been a great preacher. And a prophet. Because the scripture is describing. You read his stuff. It's very eloquent. And very smooth. In Ezekiel 33. 31 and 32. God tells Ezekiel. What the people who came every week. To hear him preach were like. And. I want you to know that they liked good preaching. The people who came to hear Ezekiel liked good preaching. He was a good preacher. He was a man of God. He preached the word. They liked hard preaching. They liked confrontive preaching. And God says this of them. They come to you as a people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but they do not do them. For they do the sinful, lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. Children of hell, loving good preaching, religious, loving good preaching, but not saved. John in first John two four says, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Later in verse nine, he says, The one who says he is in the light, and yet hates his brother is in darkness till now. In John four twenty we read If someone says, I love the Lord and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There are plenty of people in the church who say they love Christ, who say they're Christians, but who are not. Who are not. They are still in darkness. They don't have the truth living and active in them. It's just knowledge, dead knowledge. And the question you need to ask yourself is that me? Is that you? Do you fit into that category? Are you going through the motions, never giving, never serving out of love for God? Because you love Christ. Because he died for you. And you want to live for him regardless of the cost. You love him because he is your savior. Judas professed to be a follower of Christ. But right now, Judas is in hell. Fifth, you can associate with Christians and not be saved. Judas lived with Jesus and the apostles for three years. He lived with them. But he wasn't saved. Do you remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? Jesus told it in Matthew 13. He said there was this guy who had a field and went out and he sowed good seed in the field. They would plow it up and while the clods were kind of rough, they would sow the seed and it would fall into the cracks. But he said at nighttime, an enemy came and sowed bad seed, weed seed, among his good seed. And the problem is, is the kind of weeds the, guy, the enemy sowed were tares. And tares looked just like wheat. You cannot tell them apart. They can grow up together and they look identical, but one's wheat and one's a tear. And you have to wait. You have to wait until right before the harvest, when they start putting out their heads of grain, then you can see that one's a wheat and one's a tear. And so his workers say, well, well, master, should we go out and hack them out of the ground? Should we, you know, get out all the bad guys and pitch them out? And the master says, no, 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 just wait a little bit longer. Harvest is coming. Harvest is coming. And we'll just walk out there. We'll just cut it all and just separate it all. We'll take all those tares. We'll put them in bundles. And we'll throw them in the fire. And then Jesus interprets this parable. Because the apostles are thinking to themselves, What does this have to do with anything? Is this a farming lesson? And in verses 37-43 through of Matthew 13... Here's Jesus' interpretation. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares, they are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire so shall it be at the end of the age the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their father and he who hears let him hear do not let this one fact escape your notice there are always terrors among the wheat in every church. Sure, most of the tares are outside the church, hopefully. Some churches are filled with them, but every church has them. Paul, when speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20:30, said, From among your own selves, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things, drawing disciples away after them from the church terrors do not trust your church attendance to save you just coming into this building and meeting with the believers doesn't make you a believer any more than an anchor of iron would help you swim it doesn't save you to be around believers Judas was around believers, high-powered believers, for three years. And Judas is now in hell. So you can be called, you can be trained, you can be devoted to ministry, profess to be a follower, associate with believers, and then go apostate. Six point. Some people go to church all of their lives, they wear a hole in their pew... We're off the covers of several Bibles, leather ones, get involved in ministry, profess to know Christ, go to Awana, memorize verses, get an incredible amount of Bible knowledge and then go apostate, apostate. Do you know what that is? An apostate is somebody who, after coming to church, after receiving full knowledge, after understanding the gospel and what it means to be saved, and fellowshipping with the saints, and being part of believers, and just experiencing Christianity and the truth of Christianity to its fullest, then turn away. Turn away. And I'm telling you, it is the worst category anyone could be in. It is the scariest position anyone could be in. For there is no hope for an apostate and they are cast into the hottest part of hell. An apostate is someone who after receiving the truth turns away just like Judas. Peter describes Judas in Acts 125 with these words... Rejecting the office of apostle and turning aside to go to his own place, which of course ended up being hell. The author of Hebrews speaks of apostates in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. He says this, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, they've heard the truth. And have tasted of the heavenly gift. They've been around the church and people who are very gifted. And have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've been able to associate with people who are walking in the Spirit. Who are gifted by the Spirit. Who are serving in the Spirit. And they've partaken with all of this incredible miracles in the early church. And have seen all of this. And they've tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've heard the preaching. They've heard the gospel. They've seen it all. And then they have fallen away. Listen to this. It's impossible. Impossible to renew them again to repentance because they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. When you get that much revelation, when you come into the church and you see the spirits working and you hear the gospel preach and you fellowship with believers and you have all that revelation you could ever hope to ever have and then you say, well, I'm going back to Judaism. I'm going back to atheism. I'm going back to Buddhism. I'm going back to Meism." You crucify the Son of God and put Him to open shame. You're declaring, Jesus isn't good enough for me. They fell away like Judas. And the scary line is, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. It's over. Oh, it's not that these people were saved and then became unsaved. It's that they appeared to be saved and appeared to be repentant and appeared to be followers of Christ. And then never really having been saved, they walk away. And because they have been confronted and exposed to the greatest amount of revelation anybody could receive and turn away, it's over. I mean, if... Being in the church and hearing the word and hearing the gospel and seeing miracles and fellowshipping those saints and experiencing all of that doesn't save you. It, it's over. The, authors of he- the author of Hebrews speaks of apostates again in Hebrews 10. Turn there. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 23. This is a very often misquoted text. We like to just pluck it, a couple of these verses, out of context because they make us feel good. A quote them right at a, you know, a potluck or something. So let's look at the potluck verses and then we'll look at their context. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Isn't that wonderful? But notice, the reason he's saying, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, the reason he makes that statement is because there is a problem he's addressing. Some weren't holding their confession fast, verse 23, and verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of our, assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That was the problem some had forsaken the assembly walked away from the church. Now, let's read on and finish the whole section because the whole thing is about this problem of not holding fast your confession and going apostate. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully, what's the nearest antecedent sin? Departing from the church. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve was trampled underfoot the son of god and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has assaulted the spirit of grace for we know him who said vengeance is mine and i will repay and again the lord will judge his people It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living god that is a scary passage that is one of the all-time scary passages. And why is it scary? Because of that phrase. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The people came into the church. They associated with the believers. They professed to know Christ. Maybe they got involved. They saw it all. And then they lost their confession. They departed from the fellowship. And what remains for them? No sacrifice for sins. Only a certain terrifying expectation of judgment only that and nothing more and that is scary that is an apostate turn over to second peter chapter 2 speaks of them there also second peter chapter 2 peter speaking of apostate false teachers and he says this verse 20 for if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, they've come to the truth, they've professed to believe it, and for a time they've turned their back on their sins. But then they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them and it happened to them according to the proverb as a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire now do you see a pattern in all these texts they're all the same Some guy comes into the church. Some gal comes to the church. They hear the preaching. They hear the gospel. They make a profession. They get involved. Maybe they get baptized. Maybe they tell all their friends. Maybe they lead people to Christ and get involved in ministry and memorize Bible verses and be faithful in their devotions. But while all this happens, because they've never really truly repented and given their heart to Christ, their heart grows harder and harder when they are exposed to the light of the truth and it goes from mud to hard clay then to brick. And finally they say, this Christianity thing, it's a joke. It's a joke. One of the commentaries that we used to study in in seminary, I think it's out of print now, but uh, there's a great real critical hebrew commentary on the first books of the old testament written by a guy no relation to the president george bush the guy goes through there and with exacting precision goes through and looks at the old testament the law shows all the parallels to the gospel to christ the new testament just you know they're great commentaries and then he got to a place in his life where he thought this is a joke and he walked away went after the wine, women, and song. And there was no longer remained a sacrifice for sins. It was impossible to renew him again to repentance because he put Christ to open shame and he's now in hell with Judas. The last state, Peter says in this text, becomes worse for them than the first. Now think about that. What could be worse than being an unbeliever with the wrath of God abiding on you? I'll tell you what. Being an informed unbeliever with the wrath of God abiding on you. You see, the more information you receive, the more accountable you are. You come to church, you hear the truth week after week, and you harden your heart and harden your heart and refuse to bend and refuse to turn from the truth and refuse to give and refuse to serve and refuse to love Christ. That just becomes a huge weight that just sinks you into a hotter place in hell. Because you are judged according to what God gives you. And apostates have all the knowledge they need to be saved. It's not like some guy out in the jungle of Africa. They have it all. And then they turn their back. And that is why the last state becomes worse for them than the first. And if you are sitting out there this morning and you know in your heart that you don't know Christ, it's time to come to repentance right now. Because if you were to die, if Christ were to come back, it would be very bad for you. Oh, you wouldn't be an apostate. But you would be accountable. Like an apostate. You can sit in church and grow in knowledge until your dying day and not be saved. You don't have to go apostate. Judas did. So don't gain assurance that you are a Christian just because you're here. And you're surrounded by a whole bunch of people who say they're Christians. Remember the many will say in that day and jesus will say depart from me i never knew you now you may be thinking to yourself okay jack i know judas is in hell now but i i know i'm a christian because when i sin i am convicted i know in my heart i i feel conviction i i feel sorrow it leads us to our seven point judas felt sorry judas repented the scriptures say uses the same word he repented, but the scriptures talk about two different kinds of sorrow, two different kinds of repentance: one is unto salvation, one is not, one is a damning repentance. Paul speaks of it in second corinthians seven ten when he says, "For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death." The author of Hebrews warns against this in Hebrews twelve sixteen and 17, where he uses Esau as an example. And this is what he says, Hebrews twelve, sixteen and 17. He says, he warns that there would be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal, a bowl of soup. He despised God's blessing, which is what apostates do. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Sorry? Oh, great sorrow. Crying? Oh, great crying. Remorse? Big time. Saved? Nope. No, was not saved. You see, there is a sorrow that some people have because they get caught and they have to suffer the consequences and they're sorry I've had people in my office weeping huge tears, grown men crying, 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 crying because they were caught in adultery only to leave my office and commit adultery again sorrow is no guarantee guilt is no guarantee the Holy Spirit goes forth and convicts the world concerning sin and judgment people feel guilty all the time Esau was grieved. He was sorry that he didn't get to be the father of the nation and God's blessings flowing through him and his descendants. Oh, he was sorry. He was so sorry. He wept. But it was a worldly sorrow. Some people are sorrow just because they don't get to have what they want. They get caught stealing, cheating on their income tax, and they're sorry, and I'm sorry. And they're, they're, The reason they're really sorry is because they can't have what they want. They're caught, and so their lusts aren't being fed anymore, and they're bummed. But that doesn't save you. No, true repentance is coming to the place where you realize you're a sinner, you realize you're under judgment, and if you don't turn from your wicked way and your unrighteous thoughts and turn to christ to follow him only trusting in what jesus christ did for you on the cross his death his burial his resurrection his shedding of blood his atonement for sins if you aren't just trusting in just what jesus did doesn't matter how sorry you are unless it is a sorry that leads to repentance and salvation there are many sorry people that is no assurance of salvation So what we learn from Judas is this. You can receive a call to the ministry and not be saved. You can be trained and gifted to do ministry and not be saved. You can do ministry and not be saved. You can fellowship with the saints and not be saved. You can profess to know Christ and not be saved. You can feel sorry for your sins. Sorry to the point of suicide and not be saved. Judas wasn't and now he's in hell. And Judas's life is a warning to every single one of us not to trust in false assurances of salvation. The church today is so into making sure people do things to know they're saved that people trust in those things which don't save. Come forward and you'll be saved. No, you won't. Raise your hand and you'll be saved. No, you won't. There's only one way to be saved And that is when God moves in a person's heart by His grace and they come to repentance and faith from within. They realize their sin. They realize Christ is the only Savior, that they can't do anything to save themselves. They're helpless to save themselves. And then God, by His grace, opens their mind to the truth. They see that Christ is the only way and they're willing to turn away from everything, to give up all, to give up their life, to die if necessary to follow Christ. And then he saves them, and then he transforms them, and they become new creatures, regenerated, and old things pass away, and all things become new. True assurance of salvation is not things you do. Now, all these things, the call, training, doing ministry, professing to know Christ coming to church, sorrow for sin, aren't those all things that Christians should do? Yes. And this is the confusion that people have. Because they think those things are assurances of salvation. They might be, but they might not be. We've just seen it. So what is this true assurance of salvation? It is this. You know who you are before a holy God, a sinner deserving judgment. You know that you deserve the wrath of God and that you cannot save yourself. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't be religious enough. Going to church, reading your Bible, none of that. And you realize that Christ died on the cross in your place, shed his blood, made atonement for sins so that you through faith in him could receive his righteousness and he your sins. And then you place your total and complete faith in Christ and he changes you and makes you into a new creature. So you do all the things that Judas did because you love God. You love him. From the heart, you love him because he saved you. And so you do all those things because you love him and you know him. And because God has changed you. Look back at your life. Look back to the last six months, the last year. Are you changing or are you stagnating? I go out in my yard. I see a tree. It's dead. Next year, it's still the same. Next year, it's still the same. It's still dead. It's not growing. It's dead. You look at your life. You're not changing. Kind of stagnating. You're dead. You're dead. Just admit it. You say, well, Jack, I'm really busy though. I mean, I'm... I'm, I'm really busy in the ministry, but are you doing it for the love of Christ? Or so other people will see, or to feel good, or appease your conscience? Those are not right motives. Are you doing it because you love Jesus? Other motives? You're dead. You're like Judas, going through the motions. So we're going to pray right now. And I want you to examine your heart. I want you to think about Judas. I want you to get scared. He's a scary guy. He is Judas the scariest. And he appears in the scriptures for this primary purpose that we would all stop and consider whether or not we know Christ and examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and I know there are people here who know you and love you. It is so evident in their life and their joy and their love for you and their desire to pursue holiness. And there are others I don't know you. Maybe they sporadically go to church and they kind of like the morality of religion. Maybe they've been raised in the church and it's become a religion learned by rote. They sing the songs, they listen to the sermons, maybe even they like the good sermons. Hard preaching, convicting preaching, but their hearts are far from you. They leave here and their hearts are far from you. Father, awaken them to their peril right now. Anybody who doesn't know you, grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Help them to contemplate and to understand, illuminate their heart to the truth that they can't save themselves by their good religious deeds. That it's only by faith, trusting faith in Jesus alone that will save them. And then right now in their hearts, may they cry out to you. May you save them, transform them. And cause them to leave here with joy everlasting. And Father, we pray all these things. Asking you to do it because you are a great God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you need somebody to pray with you, we have counsel.